This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. It's edited by Andrea Lopez Viafania. You know, I've been thinking Good about edit. dropping Viafania. Have you? Oh my yeah, gosh. since this morning. <laughs> so you've really thought it through. Got it. Did, did you re- did you record that? <laughs> Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafaña, managing editor at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined this week by reporters Jacob McGuinney, Will Huntsbury, and Catherine Gray. What's up, guys? Hey. Yo. Oh, I'm okay. <laughs> oh, that sounded deep. We'll get it. We'll unpack that later, Jacob. I Thursdays can't go down tough. this road with you right now. No, let's keep it upbeat here. Come on. Coming up on the show this week, the San Diego City Council is fuming over what could have been a big housing project for the city. An old, wealthy San Diego company blocked a project that could have resulted in dozens of homes. Now, the council wants to track down others that might be doing the same. Also this week, Will dug into the most common myths about homelessness. He examined the claims and has some data to help balance the story of homelessness in San Diego. And the city of Chula Vista is also making moves in housing. In addition to applying to state funds, they're using tiny homes to house residents. But Catherine has found less than a third are occupied. She'll explain that city's approach to the region's biggest crisis. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, I think a lot of our listeners um, know my struggles with composting and trying to use the new little bin that many of us received. Mm. Um, So let me backpedal a bit. Uh, The city of San Diego wants us now to collect our food waste in a separate bin. um, The green bins. The green bins. So with that, some of us might have gotten like a smaller version, a little bucket that- A little pail. A little pail that you can keep. (laughs) That um, sounds cute. I did not get a pail. It's a cute little pail. You can keep it on your counter. (laughs) <laughs> you can keep it on your counter or um, as some of the professionals have done, <laughs> uh, you keep it in your freezer. So it stops your you know, food waste from getting really nasty and smelling gross. Um, so I started doing that and I think I was doing a good job. I was you know, giving our listeners progress reports on mm-hmm. my um, ability to compost. And honestly, it's dead now. I have the not been doing it. Oh, you you yeah. haven't been turning it? No, my, my, my practice of it, like uh, it's, it's so, it's tricky. There's like a weird balance and I've done a lot of things to make it work. But what happens is the little pail fills up. So then you have to dump it into the big bin. But then once you dump it into the big bin, it, you know, like it starts falling apart. It gets really messy. It smells. So then I have to it like, composts. yeah. So I have to wait, like if we cut the grass, then I can layer it with grass and stuff. Mm. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes the guy doesn't cut the grass and I don't have yard clippings. And so I've 
Right now, I have a little bin full of compost in my freezer, and it's been there for two weeks. And the rest of my food waste has just Gross. gone to my trash can. Maybe if you get into the science of it or something, you're like, yes, I'm watching this food waste become mm-hmm. fertilizer, and now I can use it on my <laughs> garden. But like, all that stuff's just not my jam, and I cannot. St- I, you know, I may or may not have never used my compost bin so far. That's where I'm at. I, I am going to come clean. I have never used my compost bin either. And this week, environment reporter Mackenzie Elmer, she reported on how San Diego isn't actually cracking down on composting bins and used some pictures from my apartment complexes. <laughs> Jacob, wow. the, re- the reporter wow, becomes the Jacob. source. <laughs> <laughs> you became the story. <laughs> I, I did. I know that's anathema to... Uh, to what we like to do here. But, okay, but um, you you saw something yeah, from so those bins. I saw something. Mm-hmm. So I was coming home one day, and the one thing that I'd noticed is the four bins for the four units at my complex had sat in front of our complex ever since they were dropped off. <laughs> um, and they'd been there for, I don't know, a month or two, maybe, maybe a year. I don't know, not really a year. But, but slowly those things started to fill up with just garbage from people walking down the street, I'd assume. And nice. so at least two of them were f- just overflowing with, with just trash, you know, food containers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's my hypothesis. It kind of looked like that though. Like food yeah. containers, like little bags from nearby stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture, styrofoam, a big plastic gulp bags. Bag, yeah, or yeah. Big gulp at cup. one point there was just a whole layer of little dog poop bags. Um, <laughs> nice. Well, that's organic. No. (laughs) You're you're actually not allowed to put dog poop because that's what I was excited about originally, just having like a bin where I could put dog poop. And they said no dog poop. Yeah, poop, huh? But there was something on the bins. Yeah, okay. So so these bins, they were were filled with, you know, very inorganic matter. um, And the ones that were filled with this inorganic matter, this just garbage, and there were these little green tags on them from the Environmental Services Department. Uh, and they had a notification that said, your greenery was not collected for the following reasons. Please fix the, uh, the problem for the next collection. And two problems were circled. One uh, was greenery not acceptable in plastic bags. Greenery must be an automated container. Um, and two, greenery contaminated. Palm fronds, cactus, yucca, banana tree, birds of paradise, tree stumps, larger than four feet, dirt or rocks, including gravel, sawdust or ashes, shingles or any chemically treated paint or wood, bags, paper or plastic, trash of any kind, including animal waste and or kitty litter are not acceptable as greenery. And and I can't speak for palm fronds or, you know, yucca cactuses, but certainly there was quite a bit of, of trash. And so these remained uncollected and to this day are uncollected. It's been, I don't know, a couple weeks now. Oh, they're still there? They're still, well, somehow, I don't know how, but they've been magically transported from the, the front yard into the back area where our other garbage cans are. I, I did not do that, but mm-hmm. somebody apparently did. Well, when you told Mackenzie, she, yeah. Mackenzie Elmer, our environment reporter, she, she was like super curious if this was a sign that the city was going to crack down on mm-hmm. bad composters like yeah. myself. Um, <laughs> and when she went around and she asked the city, they basically said no and that that was a mistake 
by that garbage collector that yeah. should not rogue, have left that tag. Like rogue garbage agent. You know? Yeah, yeah, an overzealous garbage collector who who uh, inappropriately tagged and then did not did pick not up our containers. I, I got to say, I was kind of excited because I was like, oh, the city is doing something. <laughs> you know, they wanted us to use bins and now they're following up to make yeah. us use bins. And I was like, cool. Yeah. And then, of course, the answer McKenzie got back was like, no, no, no. There is no mission here to crack down on bins whatsoever. We're just we're letting it ride. Yeah. The city said you think we're doing something we're not we're not doing something no no we're doing nothing nothing we don't do that stuff <laughs> yeah and actually i mean I, I agree right i think that there probably should be corrective action or at least you know a little lesson to the Some bad boys education, yeah. right? well they Some said education. they're focusing on education right now and that's kind of their yeah, they need to response. tell us what yucca plants look like or <laughs> yeah. whatever they are I... so so anyway long story short these are still in our backyard um uh, McKinsey spoke to some folks um, at the city who said, no, right now we're going to be accepting all this stuff. We're basically just going to bring it to the to the landfill and we're going to have people pick through it by hand um, and sort these things, which sounds much, much worse than just not picking <laughs> yeah. up, the, you know, the garbage cans. If, if the choice is between like having some poor soul right. dig through like dog poop bags versus instructing the citizens. Yeah, I would prefer citizens to be instructed and, and it is interesting the, the there is one can that is filled with organic waste which actually is my can and not because i oh, filled so you it. weren't oh, the you. culprit of the trash it wasn't my okay. can no um <laughs> and it, it you know i must come clean it. it's not because i've used the can it's because our gardeners actually know like nice. what to do the gardeners uh -huh. that the property manager hires and so i i I, I think there has been some education, but certainly not to the general public. Yeah. This week, San Diego City Council members called out H.G. Fenton for blocking a permanent supportive housing project. H.G. Fenton is a 100-year-old family-owned company here in San Diego. The project, which would have converted a motel to homes, could have opened up 140 rooms. This would have been a critical asset for the city as it scrambles to secure as much housing as it can. Will, last time you were here with us, you talked about this company. Could you sum up a little bit of what you found? Sure, sure. Yeah, I we talked about H.G. Fenton before. And so in, in this case, the city has been trying to buy extended stay motels with state money to create what you said, permanent supportive housing. What that means is, in this case, housing for people who are homeless and as the supportive indicates, you know, these um, permanent supportive housing projects, they house these homeless people permanently and there's support on site mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, sometimes mental health services on site or certainly people to get people the help they need. Um, and so city wanted this extended stay motel and it was located in this area called Mission Valley Heights. But H.G. Fenton had created a covenant for that area years ago. And that covenant said there could be no low income or subsidized housing there. And so basically that covenant went out. The city asked HG Fenton to change it. Hey, will you change the covenant so we can like open up this extended stay motel for homeless people? Cause we desperately need this housing. HG Fenton was like, nah, we're not going <laughs> to do that. And so they successfully brought blocked the project. Mm -hmm. And so the city stopped pursuing yeah, the city was like, okay, we can't figure this out. It's a, it's done. We mm -hmm. can't get this one. So what happened at city council that brought up your story? Yeah, so, you know, um, I guess uh, 
a lot of these negotiations happen behind closed doors mm-hmm. with a separate agency called the San Diego Housing Commission. They answer to the city council, but they are not the city council. So the council members didn't necessarily know about this until they read my story, um, you know, as you can hear in, in some of their audio. Um, let's play that Marnie Von Wilpert real quick. I also wanted to ask about, I saw an, an article in The Voice of San Diego um, that H.G. Fenton had been having concerns and maybe holding up another potential hotel we were going to get in Mission Valley. Is there any update on that? Yes, we initially were looking at three extended stay uh, properties. The property you mentioned had some covenants and restrictions on the title that did not allow for residential use, and we were not able to come to an agreement to have those removed, and so that's why we're here with uh, two today. Okay. Is there a possibility in the future that we could still look into that if some if H.G. Fenton were to change its mind? Uh, yeah, if, if H.G. Fenton were to change their mind and other opportunities um, to, to receive state funds, or, or, or even not, if, uh, if that property were to become available, we'd certainly look at the feasibility and, and whether that could be done. Okay, got it. Um, it is very disappointing that very wealthy companies are not helping us on our journey to house folks here in San Diego. So there you go. Uh, you know, um, Marnie Von Wilpert said it. Um, I think the council members were pretty disappointed to learn that H.G. Fenton blocked this project. You know, most mm-hmm. of them are invested in creating this permanent supportive housing as quickly as they possibly can because it's been very difficult to uh, create. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that was uh, Von Wilpert talking about her disappointment. But Sean Elo Rivera also, um, in even kind of stronger words, uh, had something to say to H.G. Fenton. That is shameful. Um, I've got a few other words that could add to the front end of that sentence, but I'll um, keep this family friendly for now. Um, thank you for, and please do let, let us know. I, I think it's really important to, for folks to know. Um, who is um, simultaneously standing as an impediment to creating housing and also maximizing profit from the housing uh, industry right now. Um, that's that's a bad look, and um, that should be as widely known as possible. So there you go. Shameful is the words that Sean Elo Rivera had for it. Um, people uh, seem pretty unthrilled about H.G. Fenton's actions. Right, and so... I think one of his points as well in the city council meeting was how important it is to get these sorts of projects online because, you know, different from just building an entire new building for people to live in, these are already structures that they use and they convert. And so his point was that having access to properties like these makes it easier for the city to house people quickly. I mean, still a lot of money, but. Totally. That knows exactly it. You know, when you buy an extended stay motel, uh, you can turn that into housing. It, it requires a little refurbishment. Mm-hmm. You know, not each of them have a kitchen. They put a kitchen in them, et cetera. But, you know, it uh, it's tough to build in San Diego. Um, it is not so tough to turn an extended stay motel into housing. You know, one thing that I'm curious about, can, can you refresh my memory? As far as I remember from your story, H.G. Fenton didn't even own this property. So how are they, how do they have the right to deny the ability to turn this into, into permanent supportive housing? Yeah. When I got the tip, I was like, oh, I guess there's some kind of zoning issue at play, Mm -hmm. but that's not what it is. You know, zoning is something that our city representatives come up with. We elect them, they create zoning laws, buildings have to comply with those zoning laws. 
Covenants and restrictions are something created by private properties. And so at one time, H.G. Fenton owned all of this land and they set up this covenant that said there can be no low income housing here. And it said a lot of other things like we'll be in control of design within here. And then they started selling off properties. But for anybody to buy one of those properties in Mission Valley Heights, they had to sign on to Fenton's covenant. And Mm. so covenant, you know, Fenton doesn't own that extended stay motel, but they used to own the land. But nonetheless, this private restriction they've come up with holds. State lawmakers have tried to deal with this. There's a law on the books that says you can overturn covenants that ban low-income housing, but that law is pretty untested and the city felt like it didn't have time to try to test it and apply for the state funds known as Home Key to get this project going. Right. That deadline was coming up. I think it's tomorrow, actually. Friday. Yep, right? tomorrow. Yeah. Yep. So they they didn't have time is what they said to Exactly. So yeah. so when it comes to you know what what to do moving forward about buildings or companies that may have these sorts of like legally binding pinky promise deals um did the city council did Sean Elo Rivera say anything about about you know other companies that may have these sorts of of covenants? Yeah, yeah, he asked about that. Let's play it. Do we know of any other developers who have restrictions like that that are standing as an impediment to our ability to create affordable housing? Yes, we do. And as Emily alluded to, and I'm really glad you mentioned it, Emily, that's something that we will be working with your offices to see if we can't find a way to put an end to that. Yeah, I'd certainly be interested in seeing a list because if there is a good way to end up on the not favored list of folks to do business with in this city, it would be those who are explicitly standing as barriers to create affordable, creating affordable housing, especially uh, housing that be, uh, can come online so quickly. Um, you heard Housing Commission staff there saying that there are other property owners using covenants and restrictions to block affordable housing projects. And so now, you know, we're, we're at a point where this Fenton story could ultimately lead to action. It, it may or may not. Um, it's in the politicians' hands now. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much I trust that, but but you know they 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 could ultimately try to get a list of other people blocking these projects and put pressure on them publicly to do something about it. Yeah, are covenants something that any anyone can put in place? Are there any regulations on who can and? Where and when? You know, covenants, I think people may have heard of covenants. Uh, and like their, racial covenants? Yes, exactly. Their nefarious uh, nature when it comes to racial covenants. You know, there were a lot of racial covenants in the past that barred um, certain races of people from living in certain neighborhoods. Um, and so, but there, there could be, it's, it's kind of like a homeowners association, you know, like a subdivision has a homeowners association that has rules and to buy that property, you have to sign on to these rules. And usually that doesn't intersect with public policy, you know, a homeowners association doing that. But when it comes to barring people by race, that certainly intersects with public policy. And when it comes to blocking low income housing, that does too. But the city does have motels that it's moving forward. Yes, it's got two extended stay motels it's moving forward with plus two other properties. So Mm -hmm. it it is uh, it is applying for quite a bit of home key money to get some permanent supportive housing going. Speaking of homelessness, Will, in response to your H.G. Fenton story, um, 
you were every editor's dream where you said, I have another story for you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) And um, you noticed something, a response to that H.G. Fenton story from comments, which we typically tend to ignore since they can get That's pretty intense. That's usually smartest, yeah. But you read them and um, you came up with a different story because of what you were seeing. Yeah, I was seeing like some really visceral reaction to the H.G. Fenton story. Um, and it wasn't towards the company no, or how the, the city opposite. handled it. It was uh-huh. like, you know, really, um, you know, uh, calling homeless people all manner of of names, uh, you know, and essentially saying, you know, they're leeches and they can't fix their lives and blah, 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 blah. And I just realized there are like a lot of assumptions about homelessness, not just that one. There, there are other ones, mm-hmm. you know, that that we're all bringing to this. We all have a powerful reaction to homelessness, like seeing people living on the street is intense. And yeah. I think it's created a lot of assumptions. Mm hmm. So let's go through some of those. I think you looked at four specifically in your story. And um, let's go in order of how likely, not likely, false, true. Yeah. Okay. Well, the first first (laughs) assumption. Cue the Jeopardy music. (laughs) First assumption, kind of the most interesting, I think. Um, Homeless people are flooding in from out of town to places like San Diego. You hear this all the time. I think in conversations with like friends or random strangers that talk to you during your lift ride totally all the time and i think it tends to be slightly more conservative where you hear that but not always you know i think it's across the political spectrum and i think my finding was inconclusive actually you know if so this data is available if you look at the annual census of homeless people done in san diego county it shows that one out of every five homeless people did not become homeless in san diego county now, a lot of them probably did become homeless in California, mm-hmm. but that's so so 20 percent, a full 20 percent. That's about 2000 people who are homeless because we counted a little more than 10,000. So, you know, I, th- I think that's a sizable chunk that we need to reckon with. You right. know, I think they're like when when people say, oh, they're flooding in from everywhere, I think progressives natural reaction is to be icked out by that and mm-hmm. say that's not true. And, um, you know, it's it's one out of every five is not a flood. It's not a majority. But it's not nothing. But it's not nothing. No, it's not nothing. Um, And and I mean, you know, and they typically with that argument, you hear people are moving towards services, you know. Right. And and I think that we have to reckon with the fact that there's truth to that, too. I mean, there have historically been so many homeless encampments in East Village because that's where all the shelters are and that's where all the services are. And city leaders designed it that way purposefully, as as our Lisa Halverstadt has reported. They pushed all the homeless providers into East Village and all the homeless people followed. So, you know, uh, yes, I, I think it, maybe people have a point that that homeless people move towards services, but. When you say that like homeless people are just flooding here and that's why our streets are flooded with homeless people, that's not entirely true either. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, that one out of every five doesn't change the fact that we have a crisis. Assumption number two, many homeless people don't want to get off the street. Okay, this one, um, you know, not that hard to answer. Um, Also, with some help from um, our Lisa Halverstadt, she's done some reporting that showed that on an any on your average given day, there are 23 
homeless bed, homeless shelter beds available. So we have shelter in the city. Um, we actually have less shelter on the West Coast than the East Coast. It's worth noting. But, yeah. um, you know, our shelter beds are logistically they're full on any given day. There are a mm -hmm. few openings, but those don't get filled for like complicated logistical reasons. Our shelter beds are full. So as of right now, we could create more shelter beds and people would be going to them. Does that mean there are some people who would never get off the street for one reason or another, maybe because they have their dog, they can't find a place for their dog, maybe maybe because they want to openly use drugs, as some people say. I don't know, and I'm not trying to assume. All I know is we have not reached the point yet where we're sheltering everybody who wants shelter. Enough to say they don't want shelter uh, because right. we have all the shelter available. That's right. We haven't reached that point. It'd be one thing if we had 700 homeless beds open every day and the streets were full of encampments, but that is not at all the situation. Okay. Assumption number three, homeless people are drug addicts or mentally ill. Treating these things is the only way to solve homelessness. And I mean, all of these things are ones that you just hear all the time. And, and, and the past two in particular are ones that I think that you hear more people in like the center left starting to shift to totally these have become more popular talking points among people who maybe a decade ago would have approached this issue with a little more compassion and a little more sort of, uh, I don't know, understanding, I guess, but that, that may not be fair. Yeah. I mean, Nancy Pelosi said this very thing recently. So mm -hmm. yeah, this, I think you're right. I think this is becoming something we see across the political spectrum. Um, and so to, Check this assumption. I dug into a massive study that the university uh, that UC San Francisco recently did. They interviewed 3,200 homeless people roughly across California um, to find out about how they became homelessness, the characteristics of those people. And so, you know, we can break this this assumption into two parts. Uh, you know, homeless people, a lot of homeless people are drug addicts and mentally ill and then the second part, these are the things that cause homelessness. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the first part first. It's kind of true, UCSF found. Um, they found that about 65% of people had at some point regularly used hard drugs in their life. So two-thirds have at some point had some kind of serious drug problem. And what does that include, hard drugs? Um, that includes meth, opioids, and cocaine okay. is what they asked about. It was about the same percentage for alcohol, 62%. Um, the mental illness findings they had were a little squishy, but they showed that people had dealt with a lot of mental health issues. If you count their questions about anxiety and depression, 82% of people said that they had had some symptoms of serious mental illness. Some of those people, it was hallucination. Um, some of those people, it was like trouble with brain functioning and remembering, mm -hmm. but the biggest portion, 69% was serious anxiety or depression. And, and those people may have experienced that after hitting the street, not before, mm -hmm. you know, the UCSF study didn't clarify. So I think that's a big caveat for that finding. But mm -hmm. first half of the statement that many homeless people are uh, addicted to drugs or mentally ill has a lot of truth to it. We just have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. The second part's a little different. Um, and I guess before I answer the second part, um, can, can we do the assumption number four? Assumption number four, homelessness is caused by a lack of affordable places to live. Housing first is the answer. Okay. So this one, again, we can break it into two parts. Homelessness is caused by a lack of places to live. 
um, housing first, a policy that's become very controversial is the answer. So to answer this one, I studied to, uh, I, I turned to a recent um, book written by a couple of researchers and it's called Homelessness is a Housing Problem. That book studied cities all across the U.S. to figure out like what are the common characteristics of places that have um, high levels of homelessness. They wanted to understand, is it drug addiction, mental illness causing it, or is it housing markets causing it? What is it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they found that the idea that mental illness and drug addiction cause homelessness is wrong. If you look at West Virginia, that's a state with very high drug addiction and very high mental illness as far as it goes. And it has a very small homelessness problem. And they found that in other places as well. You know, I think a lot of us know people who've been addicted to drugs or had a mental illness who could maintain housing. But what they found is that places with the worst homelessness had tight, 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 tight housing markets, you know, and just think about how tight it is in San Diego right now. The vacancy rate for rentals is really low. It's around 3% of rental units that are vacant. That's half the national average. Mm -hmm. So that was one characteristic they found. And they found the cost of housing was really, really high. So in places where it's very expensive to rent and there are very few places to rent, that's a landlord's market. And somebody might come to them who can afford to rent, who has a kind of crappy job. And the landlord's like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to wait for somebody who's like got an even bigger Mm -hmm. paycheck and a better work history. Um, and so, you know, they made a very convincing case that that's what causes homelessness. They they compare it to like a really messed up game of musical chairs. Like the people in the, some of the people in the game have impairments mm-hmm. and maybe, you know, maybe in musical chairs, that's a sprained ankle. But in homelessness, maybe it is drug addiction or mental illness. And when there's not that many house, houses available the people with those impairments will lose out first. They'll get left standing first. And so that is why we see so many people with addiction issues and mental illness issues on the street is because, you know, they are more at risk in this terrible game of housing we're playing in San Diego. Um, so that's the first part, you know, I, so I would say the first part of assumption number four, which tends to be held by progressives, I would say that's true. Now, the question of is housing first the solution? Mm-hmm. We've heard people like Jim Desmond, uh, county super Republican county supervisor, and many other Republicans start to bash the idea of housing first. Right. The idea of why are we giving them a house if they're drug addicts? They need to first recover from whatever drug use. That's do. right. That's right. And that's what housing first, you know, housing first says we need to get people in a home to help stabilize them. So mm-hmm. like, yes, this person is addicted or whatever the case may be, but we need to get them into housing and then we'll try to get them sober. And especially Republicans in San Diego have a strong reaction that that is not the right way to approach things. It may or may not be the right way to approach things. But what I can tell you from my research is that the way we're practicing housing first in San Diego right now is a drop in the bucket to the humanitarian crisis on the streets. So like the, the principle of housing first may be the gold standard, Mm -hmm. but like we are creating permanent supportive housing units, which is a critical component of that at a very slow drip. So like, it's not 
helping quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And another big component of that is rental vouchers. If you want a rental voucher, can anybody guess how long the waiting list is to get a rental voucher in San Diego? Well, I'd be cheating because I edited your story. (laughs) (laughs) Anybody not know can guess. Mm, Five years? Higher. 325 years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Too high. (laughs) (laughs) A little little too high. 12 years. 12 years to get a rental uh, assistance voucher. So, you know, the way we are not creating housing first at the clip necessary to get people off the streets. So, so this assumption that housing first is a solution, I think that's got to be put in check too. Like maybe you love it. Maybe it's the gold standard for dealing with this problem, but if it is the only tool in our toolbox right now, good luck. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Usually at press conferences, it's, uh, you know, an elected official up on a podium or whatever it is they're doing. And you have a bunch of reporters and we're the ones asking questions. Um, but a couple weeks ago, Mayor Todd Gloria asked a question himself. I might draw your attention and ask what other jurisdictions are applying for home key dollars in the county of San Diego. I'll wait for that reporting. Enter Andrea Lopez Villafana. <laughs> um, so put, putting it into context, that press conference, um, he, what he was speaking to and the questions that he was answering before getting to his own question uh, were those by our Lisa Halberstadt, who was asking some follow-up questions to Will Huntsbury's story about H.G. E. Fenton. And um, just to summarize, she was just asking, you know, what's going to happen next? What's the city going to do next? Uh, would you maybe consider some sort of a lawsuit? So she's dropping a lot of questions at him. And um, that was his response. And so I was curious. I was like, okay, I'll take that challenge. So I emailed all the cities in San Diego County and I asked them and only one came back to me saying that they are applying and that's the city of Chula Vista. The rest of the cities either told me they were not applying because they didn't have any eligible properties that they identified um, or just flat out told me no. We're not applying. Um, And the rest didn't answer. But so the city of Chula Vista uh, had a meeting this week and they approved um, they approved applying for home key funds for a 31 room motel. Catherine was listening to the meeting. 
Yes, I was. Um, and first, I just want to welcome Catherine Gray, yeah. our Woo! Voice of San Diego intern, to her first podcast session. Hi, so. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be here. Um, yeah, so the meeting was very interesting. So they were talking about home key funding to buy this hotel. Before they did the presentation, the mayor addressed the fact that they are doing a lot for homelessness and housing solutions. And before they got into the home key portion of the meeting, that they wanted to address a lot of misconceptions about this tiny home village mm -hmm. that is in Chula Vista at the moment. So that that's new for the city, right? This is this is a its first shelter that it opened up, yep. and it's not. Um, what might be considered like a bridge shelter, even though that's what they're calling it. It's not a big shelter. Right. So they're calling it a bridge shelter. But I think most people, when they hear that, they think of a big a tent and a congregate living space. But what this is, is it's 65 prefabricated units um, that they're calling tiny homes. They have electricity, but they don't have um, any plumbing. So they will have on-site laundry and bathroom facilities for people to use. But currently, um, they're on a conditional use permit because they have not completed the permanent bathrooms or laundry facilities. Mm -hmm. So the city has told me that they're operating under capacity because they're waiting to finish those projects. And at the moment, they didn't confirm how many people were there, but they did say that they can serve between 5 and 20 at a time, and 20 is the cap. Um, at the moment. So they're going to give us some updates in the coming weeks because last week I was told that the shelter would be able to most likely be at capacity by the middle of this week. And then at the meeting, it was shared that in the next few weeks, it could be at capacity. So still trying to get answers to a few questions and figure out, you know, how the shelter is running, um, but it's a big it's a big move for a city who's never had a shelter before and also just started their housing and homeless solutions department six months ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's good to see that they're they're trying to do something, but it's not sure how many people they're actually helping at this moment. Yeah, so Chula Vista is totally new to this. I think um, with the thirty one room motel, it's interesting they're pulling different funds for this project. Um, one thing that was interesting to me, one is they're applying for $7 million for the state project that we're calling Home Key. Um, and they're also pulling in other funds um, from like federal monies that they have. And um, one thing that was interesting is that they're pulling $13 million from federal funding that they have. Um, these are like recovery funds to maybe plan for not getting the state's home keys money. Hmm. Um, so that shows me that they fully intend to move forward with this property, even if they don't get home key funding, um, which again will be first for the city of Chula Vista. And um, they're also considering the property itself has a big parking lot and they're considering turning that into a safe parking lot, um, which again would be new. The city. Yeah, and it's definitely needed down there. In the last point in time count, there were over 300 homeless Chula Vista residents. And uh, from the reporting I've been doing, what I can gather is a lot of them have lived there their whole lives. So they are from Chula Vista. When it comes to the, the tiny home uh, village, I guess, I don't really know. Uh, it does seem pretty underwhelming that, that it's what, a third full? I mean, it, it would, was there any conversation about that at the, at the meeting? 
Um, not at the meeting, but what I had been told previously um, by a city official is that they were waiting on materials because of a backlog because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they were still waiting on building uh-huh. materials, and that was what was holding up the bathrooms and the permanent laundry facilities. Mm-hmm. So that's what I've been told. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my gym equipment too. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, Catherine, what's next on your reporting when it comes to homelessness in Chula Vista? Are there are there any other things that you're looking into? Um, right now, I'm trying to learn more about what's going on inside the shelter. Uh-huh. So, waiting to get some documentation around the operating plans and the grant application to see how those two match up. Hmm. If what they proposed they would do is matching up with what's actually going on. So... To uh, be confirmed, I don't have the documents yet, but um, I'll definitely be following the story and also what's going on in Chula Vista because it's the second largest city in the county. And, you know, they also there's some heavy lifting to be done there. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah. And Catherine's been writing about all sorts of things all over the county. Yeah. El Cajon, Poway. So uh, feel free to reach out to her, send her any story tips. I guess we have to give it to to Mayor Todd Gloria that he did have a bit of a point when he challenged reporters on this <sighs> one. I know, I know it hurts, but you know, he he asked, is anybody else doing anything? And we found out of more than a dozen cities in San Diego County. Only one. Only, only one, one other. Only yeah. one other, you know, and El Cajon certainly has a pretty large homeless population, as do several other places around the county. So it's kind of wild to not see them try to capitalize on these free state dollars yeah, free to them. Yeah, what does it hurt to apply? I did so I, you know, reaching out to a lot of cities, some of them were just straight up like no, some of, you know, um them explained that there's no properties for them to use, but I think what was interesting was two smaller cities did sort of give me some background and explain that like for them to do this and they were thinking more of the hotel purchases. Mm-hmm. There has to be motels willing to you know, like go for sale. Yeah. And if they're smaller cities and they're close to city of San Diego, these motels are pretty full. They're not actually vacant. Like they make a lot of money. People who come to conferences in the city of San Diego or large events, like you might not want to pay $300 a night to stay in downtown, but you can go down to national city and stay at a cheaper motel. And so these hmm. motel owners um, don't have incentives large enough to sell themselves because they make so much you know they they have a they have a pretty um, low vacancy rate. Hmm, so so that was sort of how it was explained to me. But there's other projects that you can apply for with HomeKey that doesn't involve purchasing motels. Hmm. Yeah, you can build. I mean, the there's a project going on right now um, in El Cerrito, I believe, um, where they're taking storage oh, containers, uh, shipping yeah, containers, like shipping containers yeah, and um, building with them. So there's lots of different options. Yeah, the state allows some wiggle room mm-hmm. on that. And are there, with the home key funding, are there any um, requirements that you have to meet in terms of, is does it have to be a low barrier shelter or the units that get built or bought? Are there any regulations there? It's permanent supportive housing, so it wouldn't be- There's no barriers to permanent okay. support, yeah. supportive housing okay. like mm-hmm. by its very nature. So, I, I mean, and that's, you know, one of the things that- Uh, conservatives criticizing housing first have Mm -hmm. said California has been pushing, has been making cities follow housing first since 2016. So that's part of what they're using as their argument to say it's not working. 
Um, so, so yes, the, the Cal state of California has been on the low barrier tip for quite a minute. Whether it's always followed or not is a different story. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. You can support us by subscribing to our newsletters. We have a great collection of newsletters featuring the voices of our journalists. See them all at VOSD.org slash newsletters. Links are in the show notes. I'm Andrea Lopez Vifania, Managing Editor. Jacob McWinney is our Education Reporter. Will Huntsbury is our Senior Investigative Reporter. Catherine Gray is our Intern. Nate John is our Producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>